Our sermon today comes from Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 29 to 31. Uh, in your pew Bibles, I think you'd find that on page 1008. Uh, while you're turning there, I, I'm reminded I was stopped in my tracks once by a, a couple of questions. Someone asked, what would you do if you really believe the gospel of Jesus was true? How would that look different from today? Uh, we're going to be some, uh, talking some about those questions, really. But before we come to God's word, let's pray, asking uh, that he would illuminate our hearts to understand his word. This prayer was written by King David centuries ago, and it was re recorded for us in Psalm 25, verses 4 to 5. So let's pray together now. Make us to know your ways, O Lord. Teach us your paths, lead us in your truth, and teach us. For you are the God of our salvation. For you we wait all day long. Amen. Hebrews 11, verses 29 to 31. <clears throat> By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Faith, this chapter tells us at the beginning, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And when God's people are sure about their hope in God, they do things wonderful, difficult, countercultural things. By faith, we're told, Abel offered an acceptable sacrifice to God. That was the action, the expression of his faith. By faith, Noah took action and he built the ark to rescue his family. Knowing by faith that God was giving him a better one, Abraham left his old home behind. That by faith, the same old man almost offered up his only son, the child of the promise. By faith, the patriarchs blessed their children with the blessings of God, even when they lived in a foreign land. And it was by faith that Joseph gave instructions that when God visited his people, his bones, though he died in Egypt, his bones should go up to the promised land with them. And when God did visit his people, faith in God led Moses' parents to defy a king. Faith led Moses himself to choose mistreatment with Israel rather than comfort in the house of Pharaoh's daughter. And by faith, Moses acted. He endured while waiting and he endured while acting. He kept the Passover on the night 
that meant death for the firstborn of Egypt, but life for the people of God. But why is the pastor who wrote this letter to the Hebrews, why is he bringing all this up? Why does the author of this letter give so many snapshots of what faith looks like when it meets the real world? Well, it's fairly simple, really. The pastor is encouraging his friends toward the same kind of active faith in their own situation. In their own day, he wants them to trust in God beyond what their eyes can see. And then he wants them to act. To act out their faith in their everyday lives. And we have to do the same thing today. Because faith acts. It hears God's words. It sees what God has done and then it responds. But that brings us to the question. What does a responding faith look like? Well, we we see more of what that looks like in verses 29 to 31. First, we, we see that responding faith journeys on God's promises. It journeys on God's promises. Second, a responding faith follows God's commands. A responding faith follows God's commands. And third, a responding faith aligns with God's rule. It aligns with God's rule. First, look at verse 29 and see how a responding faith journeys on God's promises. Now, up to this point in the chapter, the writer to the Hebrews has been focusing on individuals in the story of redemption. How a person trusted God, and then acted on that trust. But here, the pastor shows us that the, such active faith is not only for the supposed spiritual elites of God's people. This kind of faith that is pleasing to God was expressed by all of his people when they crossed through the Red Sea. You might remember that story from Exodus 14. After the worst and final plague, the death of Egypt's firstborn, Israel begins her exodus out of slavery. And in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, God himself leads them into the wilderness toward the Red Sea. But then Pharaoh, who has released Israel, rethinks his decision and he pursues to reclaim his slaves. I want you to just take a moment and put yourself into Israel's shoes. You can close your eyes if that would be helpful. You're standing on the edge of the Red Sea. There's desert behind you and deep water in front of you. And you look back over your shoulder and what you see is the most technologically advanced fighting force in the world coming up behind you. The dust that's kicked up by the chariot seem a sign of your coming death. Pinned between death by drowning and death by the sword with nowhere to go. What is it that wells up in your heart? It's fear. Someone next to you screams at Moses, what have you done to us? It would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Doesn't exactly sound like faith, does it? 
But then Moses speaks. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And then Moses lifts his hands over the sea, and the Lord drives the sea itself back, dividing the waters, opening a way for you to pass through. What do you do in that moment? What could lead a person to venture into that channel through the depths? Maybe it was only the tiniest seed of faith moving your feet in spite of your fear. But you walk. You walk forward into the sea. Walls of water tower above you on your right and your left, but you yourself are walking on dry ground. You journey on convinced that the God who just promised life to you and the God who opened a way through the sea, you're convinced that he's trustworthy enough to see you through it. After what feels like ages, you pass through and you come out the other side. Maybe you're one of the last ones out. Behind you, though, you look back and in the midst of the sea, you see that the path is still open and it is full of Egyptians. Still pursuing. But their chariot wheels start sticking in mud and the soldiers' faces turn to terror. And you realize what's about to happen just an instant before it does. The walls of water crash over them, and the Lord turns the very waters of your salvation into a flood of destruction. One writer says that to step into the waters of the Red Sea, confident of them parting and remaining so for all to reach the other side safely, was certainly faith in action. There could be no trial run, no rehearsal to give confidence. Just motivated and sustained by faith in Him who promised then opened the way of life, God's people journeyed on. The pastor who wrote Hebrews calls that day to mind because he wants us to remember how faith responds. God's people journeyed on God's promises back then, and all believers will have to do the same in their own day, because there will always be times when God's people find themselves in impossible places. But as we believe that our God is not the kind of God who rescues people only to abandon them, As we believe that, we must journey on his promises. Now, there are many today who assume that God is for them. And yet I wonder if their confidence is a bit more like the Egyptians. It's built on assumptions and shifting sand. Maybe you have not yet understood that there is a solid hope that is based on a solid Savior, and it is far far better than wishful thinking or positive optimism. 
But what about you? You who hope in Christ. What's the impossible situation that you're facing today? Whatever may cause fear and questions to rise in you, there is only one thing for it. Like Israel, we have no trial runs, no rehearsal to give confidence. We must act on his promises in the place where we are today, right now. Today, you must journey on relying on his promises. Even if you don't yet see the way being opened for you, journey forward on the promises that he has made to you, not through Moses, but through the better Moses. Christ, your Savior, He Himself has promised to never leave you or forsake you. He says He will be with you even to the end of the age. He says He is for you and that nothing can now separate you from His love so that you can rest assured that He will never surrender to you, surrender you to the enemy. It's true that He may lead you through deep waters. Because his way of salvation is sometimes through the depths. But his promise to you is that they will not overwhelm you. And he calls you to journey on in faith along that road that he has set in front of you. Whatever it may hold. And so first, a responding faith journeys on God's promises. But second, I want you to look at verse 30 and see that a responding faith follows God's command. It says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Here the writer of Hebrews leaps forward 40 years in Israel's story. As they come out of the wilderness, they cross over the Jordan again on dry ground. And they enter the promised land only to be faced by another impossible situation, capturing the city of Jericho. Jericho stood guard at the entrance to the Promised Land. Jericho represents the strength of the Canaanite people. Just like the chariots of Egypt represented the most advanced offensive technology, military technology of the day, the walls of Jericho were the pinnacle of defensive technology. Jericho had its own spring of water inside the walls of the city. And so as long as the food lasted, a determined determined people could endure a siege. And any army that attempted to conquer it by force could send wave after wave of soldiers only to see them crash helplessly against the walls. But God means to show his people his power once again. And so to Joshua and the people, the Lord gives commands and they don't really make much sense. He gives strange commands. He tells the priest to walk around the city carrying the ark and blowing trumpets. The soldiers of Israel should go ahead and behind them, walking around the city, but keeping silent. One circle a day for six days, 
And then on that seventh day, seven times around the city. And on the seventh day, at the last circling, when the priest sounds the horn, only then should the people raise their voices and shout great shouts. And then the Lord promised, then the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him to take the city. Whatever plan the people expected for the taking of Jericho, it's safe to say that was not it. That was not what they expected. But under the faithful leadership of Joshua, the people heard and they trusted and they obeyed that strange command. We, we aren't told, but you can even imagine how tempting it would have been to take up arms against the city. You can imagine that maybe by the third or, or fourth day after the, the Jericho, the people of Jericho, after their, their confusion maybe turned into derision, you, you can imagine the, the rather nasty taunts ringing down from the walls of the city. And yet, after a week of waiting, the wisdom and the power of God was vindicated. At the sound of the trumpets and the shouts of the people, the walls of Jericho fell flat and that strong city was taken. Now, why did God give such a seemingly absurd command? Was it not to show his power through the weakness of his people? After all, what was it that the people actually did? It, it was nothing, really. Uh, preaching 1,600 years ago, John Chrysostom said, Assuredly, the sound of trumpets is not able to break down stones, though one blow for 10,000 years. But faith can do all things. And by their faith, the people followed God's commands, even when it didn't make sense. And this is where we see the application for us today. Because if you remember the context of Hebrews, you will remember, you'll see why a responding faith that follows God's commands is so vital. Because God's chief command to his people is that we keep clinging to Jesus that we hold fast to him, even if it cost us something, even if our very life is taken away from us, we cling to him. Because we've heard the good news of his enthronement as king, and so we must not drift away from it, Hebrews tells us. We've heard that all things will be put into subjection under Christ's feet, and so we must now bow our knee to him who suffered death and is now crowned with glory and honor. You and I are commanded to encourage each other so that we won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but rather we hold to our original confidence in Christ. We are commanded to strive to enter God's rest, which we do when we obey His command to hold fast to Jesus, our great High Priest. This fundamental command to cling to Christ is at the heart of Hebrews because the believers were sorely tempted to abandon Jesus. 
in the face of persecution, when their hearts were asking that question that we've asked so many times as we've gone through this book, when their hearts were asking the question, is this what salvation looks like? In the face of persecution, God's command didn't really make any sense. And yet a faith, a faith that sees beyond circumstances to the God who rules wisely and kindly over all things for his people, that kind of faith can follow God, follow his command, even through the most confusing of days. Because it knows that this God often works counterintuitively. And he does that specifically to shame those who think themselves wiser than him. Because he is a God who always gives good commands to his people. That when his people follow them, as they trust in him, those commands can accomplish what we in our weakness could never do. And so here's where I have to ask you, even even beyond the command to cling to Christ, which of God's commands make the least sense to you? Which of his commands hurts your head? When he tells you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, can you do that when your enemy seems to be a member of your own household? Or when the Lord tells you to forgive others just as he has forgiven you, are you willing to submit to that command in faith? Believing that the Lord himself is the one who may work in the heart of that other person. Or will you make excuses because Jesus could not possibly have intended for that that command to apply to your situation? Or when Jesus says to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality? Does your faith practice that command even though your bank account seems small? Or when Jesus says in humility, count others more significant than yourselves, let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interest of others. Does that command extend to to the people that you like while that guy at school or at work isn't worthy of such sacrificial love. Of course, in all of these things, as we pursue obedience to God's command, we must leave the outcome of our obedience to Him. We do not, in every situation of our life, we do not have the same promise of a specific outcome like God gave to Joshua about Jericho's walls. You'll have to check your own expectations at the throne, at the foot of his throne, submitting to the possibility that he may have plans other than yours. After all, our expectations, we have to confess, our expectations are sometimes shaped more by sin and painful experience than shaped by faith in the Lord. But isn't it safe Isn't it safe to leave the outcome in the hands of a good and loving and just and merciful God like this one? Hasn't he proved himself over and over again to be worthy of our trust? Our calling then is not to achieve certain outcomes 
or to obey based on some expectation that we have about what will happen. But our call is to pursue a faith-filled obedience to His commands. And so first, uh, responding faith journeys on God's promises. Second, a responding faith follows God's commands. But third, look at verse 31 and see how a responding faith aligns with God's rule. It says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Back before those walls of Jericho fell, spies from Israel had gone into the city to see the place. And it shouldn't surprise us that spies, the, the spies avoided the busy inns, those places that were probably a bit more like the prancing pony from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, uh, a place where everybody was really interested in everybody else's business and a strange accent might attract a lot of attention. Instead, they went to a place where eye contact is avoided and no one asks for names. A, a house in the red light district where those who want to remain anonymous can hide in the shadows. And that is where they met Rahab. Rahab protected these spies from the king's men who were looking for them. And then this woman whose trade kept her in the red light district. Then this woman says something wholly remarkable. You hear it in Joshua 2. Rahab said, I know that the Lord, she's heard the name of Yahweh, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And we heard what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab, a Gentile who was an open sinner, becomes, as one writer says, a vivid picture of faith, proved by works more than words. And yet in her words, we hear the root of her faithful actions, that her faith that blossomed into action, she expresses the conviction that Israel's God is the only real God. Another says she expresses her confidence in the future of Israel as a nation because they have Yahweh as their God. And so, by her faith, she welcomes the spies. And by doing so, she shifts her allegiance. She aligns herself with a new king, the king, and his kingdom. Now you and I today, we make fun of people who jump on a winning team's bandwagon, right? And, and rightfully so. Uh, it's almost seen as a height of virtue, apparently, to love a team before they were good. Back in my day, one boasts, my team was terrible, and I loved them. I, it's... For some unknown reason, people talk like that. 
Now, in sports, jumping on the bandwagon of a winning team makes you something less than a real fan. And yet when it comes to the kingdom of God, aligning yourself with God's rule is something eminently desirable, no matter how belated you are to the party. And to us, even more so than to Rahab, the kingdom of God has been revealed. It has been announced and seen in the person of Jesus, the King Himself, who shows us what the kingdom of God is like and calls us to come in and enjoy it with Him. Again, Chrysostom preached long ago, it would then be disgraceful if you should appear more faithless than even a harlot. Yet she merely heard what the men related and immediately believed. And her belief in God's rule led her to immediately align her life to the Lord by welcoming his people, spies though they were, welcoming his people into her home, even asking them to protect her when the city fell. And what about you? If you have heard and believed in King Jesus, if you have come by faith in him into his kingdom, you understand that you must You must align your life with His rule. His authority over you extends into every facet of your life, and He will leave no unconquered territory in your heart. As followers of Jesus, we must seek to align our will, our desires, our loves with His will and His desires and His loves. We must align our thoughts and our actions about money and food and sex and comfort and power and politics and care for the poor and economic development and the value of human life, we must align all of those things with his thoughts about money and food and sex and comfort and power and politics and care for the poor and economic development and the value of human life. We must align ourselves to the king and his kingdom. And that, must, that means we must examine ourselves, asking the question, what kingdom, what kingdom am I aligned with? Not just in word, but in heart and action. Am I aligned with the kingdom of God or the kingdom of this world? Am I willing, however painful it may be, to submit every aspect of myself to the Lordship of Christ? Or am I seeking to keep the corners of my heart for myself, my own little dark and broken kingdom that I love and hate at the same time? And here's the hard truth. None of us are fully aligned with His rule. We are not yet as faithful servants as we ought to be. And so we have to ask the question, why don't we live this way? Why don't we align ourselves with God's rule fully and completely? Why don't we follow His commands? Why don't we journey through the deep places 
resting on his promises. The, the truth is that you and I still have this struggle of belief going on inside us as we wrestle with the threats of our circumstances from without and, and we wrestle with those fears within. We, we wrestle with uh, this temptation to believe the lie that says we are alone on this journey. Or the lie that says our wisdom is wiser than God's. Or the lie that says my own kingdom, my own way is better than his. To rule myself is, is life and to follow him is death. We are tempted to believe those lies. But you have to understand, that is exactly why the letter to the Hebrews was written to lead us back out of those broken ways of thinking and, and living, it, to lead us back to Christ in faith so that we might repent from our sin and return to our rest in Him. Because if we acknowledge our sin and we go looking for hope, if we're asking where is there room for hope, then God's answer to us is in the gospel of His Son, Jesus. Because he tells us that by faith in Christ, we are those who have already passed through the waters of death into life with Christ. Christ's own body, his death on the cross, is our Red Sea that has been opened up and we pass through his death into life with the Father. Because we know that Jesus went to the cross to display the wisdom of God and his power to deal with sin. As just like Moses said to God's people that they would never see those Egyptians again. So Christ says to us that by faith in him, your sins are taken away. Removed from you as far as the east is from the west. And the Father will never call them to mind again. We have this confidence that Christ is our life because, because Jesus himself was raised from the dead. Completely vindicating the wisdom and the power of God. Vindicating Jesus himself as the Son of God. And assuring us in the body of our Lord the risen body of our Lord, that following the wise commands of God, even if it leads you through death, following Him is safe and it's right. And even more than all this, the gospel gives us hope today because King Jesus does not treat us as our past deserves. Instead, he gives us his spirit to bolster our faith and create the desire in us, like Rahab, to live in alignment with his kingdom and his ways. Yes, he will convict us when we wander. He will correct us in his love. And yet he assures us that our place in his kingdom remains secure because it was never, it was never determined by our obedience in the first place. And so our hope in Christ, our, our God's promise to us in him is the very thing that leads us back to a responding faith, a, a, faith that, a faith that even today will pursue new obedience to him. 
Because as we fix our eyes on Jesus, we live as resurrection realists, knowing that God has not only promised us life, but given it to us, given it to us in Jesus, who is our life both now and in the age to come. And looking to Christ puts courage into our hearts, enabling us to journey on God's promises, to follow God's commands, and to align ourselves with God's rule in every facet of our life. And it's actually here in this very meal that God himself confirms his promises to you to strengthen you in your weakness. Here, he gives you the strength to journey on, nourished by the body and blood of your Lord himself, who gave up his life to unite you to him. Here is the proof for you that following God's commands, even when they don't make sense, just as the cross of Jesus made no sense to Peter and James and John before the resurrection, this is the proof that following God's command is far from foolish. This, at the table, this meal is your assurance that your king, he is good and he is loving and he is just and he is kind. He assures you of all of this so that you can gladly renounce your kingship over your own life and you can instead gladly submit to him. Let's pray and, and enjoy the table that God is inviting us to now. Let's pray together. Father, we do praise you and give you thanks. It was you who, who promised redemption, and it was you who accomplished it through Jesus Christ our Lord, our good shepherd who laid down his life for his wandering lost sheep. Father, we, we come to you asking your blessing on this meal that we would eat and enjoy, eat in faith, seeing Christ crucified for us, his body and blood given to us. Father, bless us as we come to the table, that we might eat in faith. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen.